is gonna bury Jack. I don't know. I don't know who's gonna want to touch that thing. <sighs> Look, kid. My daddy didn't do anything like what your daddy did up there. He did up and leave me, my mom, and my sister. Just went off to a shoe factory one morning and never came back. He knew was nothing to do but forget his sorry ass. Some people were born just so they could be buried. How are we living in this world? Is this really happening? Yeah, yeah. This year is just like constant, like, there's no respite. Yeah, I was just sitting downstairs. Ellie, Ellie loves it. She's making a noise. <laughs> I mean, she has a I lot to write about. <laughs> I, I actually put my headphones in. I love you. Um, try, I do end up listening to you. Yeah. I can't. Ellie's trying to work while we're talking, but we're so engaging. She can't. Uh, just sucks in. She can't zone us out. Well, that's what makes a good podcast. I should just play. I mean, none of this is going to be a podcast. This is me and you talking about how terrible Trump is. No, I like, think I'm going to. I'm going to put this in. It'll be like the little. Oh, God. okay. <laughs> This is the interesting stuff, not the actual book and film, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could start talking about that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless you. You sound so, so enthused about it. I mean, it is like the most unrelentingly brutal book I've ever read. Yep, yep. Like, right. And it's also a situation of there is no hope is what the feeling you have after you're reading this book, which is that kind of work, which works in parallel with 2020. <laughs> Do not read this book if you're having a hard day. <laughs> Welcome to book club, Sean. <laughs> Thank you, Nora. Thank you for having me. So we've read The Devil All the Time, which title I can never remember for some reason. Really? Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't really roll off the tongue for me maybe what it's called hmm. something else but I, I get I get it but I don't know if it's the best title so it's by Donald Ray Pollock who was a high school dropout that worked in a meatpacking plant and then a paper mill for 32 years mm. uh, at 45 he quit his job at the mill in order to go to graduate school and became a writer Pollock's first book was published in 2008 and was critically acclaimed collection of 18 short stories set in Knockham Stiff where he lived the Devil All the Time was published in 2011, and then his follow-up book was The Heavenly Table, published in 2016. Okay. Such an interesting guy. I was reading a few interviews with him, and he was saying hmm. he, was he was such a big reader and would read, like, all the classics. And when he first started writing as an exercise to learn how to write dialogue and transition scenes, he would copy out books and short stories. I did what? Just like rewrite them? I hand yeah, rewrite them? Just write them. Wow. As a way to really get to know the material. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, like to unpack the kind of the process, the kind of structure of it all. Well, it's like an mm. artist. Like you, I think a lot of artists will learn how to draw by trying to replicate other artists. And yeah, 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 yeah. Style. So it's a similar yeah. concept. No, I've just never thought about it in terms of writing, but that's... Oh, Honey Buns, hello. She just jumped on. She wanted to be in the camera view. She's... You, know, <laughs> you see her? Oh, bless her. her tail. <laughs> yeah, I think he's 
really, really amazing. And I always like the idea of a late bloomer. There's always hope for us, no matter what age. Yep, yep. Fills me with hope. I'm only 32. Yeah. So I've got, got hope. You know, 45 is when he started writing. So he wasn't in, I think he was in his 50s when he started, got published. Yeah, it must have been. Yeah. Yeah, especially like with that kind of delay, like, what do you think, 20, 2008 was the short story collection? Yeah. And then three years later, uh, first novel, and then like four years later. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, he said also he started out trying to write different genres, you know, about, you know, romance and sort of ah. literary stuff. But he he just, he said it didn't feel like him and he couldn't envision the characters. So once he started writing what he knew, because there is various bits of the stories that are based off of his own experiences, obviously. Yeah, yeah. It's a, from the town that he lived in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like everything's kind of set in and with like in and with round the area kind of he lived and worked. The characters do similar jobs that he worked for all that time. So you can really see he's drawing from his own personal life. Yeah. Which makes it feel more real to, you know, yeah, the yeah, yeah, fortunate yeah. benefit of it. Hopefully his life wasn't quite this brutal, but... Um, yes. He did say he saw like really brutal relationships growing up. I don't know if that necessarily meant his own upbringing was that brutal. I think mm. there's one scene that he did say was from experience that really tra- traumatized him. And it's the um, the scene where the dad goes and beats up the other guys. Oh, okay. And he, he said he had that, a similar like situation. a really specific scene. You know, that felt very much like drawn from reality. It felt too too specific in kind of the tone and um, even the kind of interactions. Uh, okay, yes, so as Nora said, um, The Devil of Time, debut novel by American writer Donald Ray Pollock, published in 2011. Um, the book blurb uh, describes it uh, thus, Willard is a tormented veteran of the carnage in the South Pacific who can't save his beautiful wife Charlotte from a slow death by cancer, no matter how much sacrificial blood he pours on his prayer log. Carl and Sandy Henderson, a husband and wife team of serial killers, trawl America's highway searching for suitable models to photograph and exterminate. The spider-handling preacher Roy and his crippled virtuoso guitar-playing sidekick are running from the law. And caught in the middle of all this is Arvin, Willard and Charlotte's orphan son, who grows up to be a good but also violent man in his own right. Terminate is an interesting choice of words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I can't remember where I grabbed that blurb from, but uh, yeah, I thought that was quite a, a, an interesting sense. All, what, what I find interesting about that is uh, characters they don't even mention in, in the blurb, which feel really pivotal to the entire story. But the fact they focus on, I guess, I guess the sp- spider-handling preacher Roy and his crippled virtuoso guitar-playing sidekick is, sounds like a much more interesting duo of characters than yeah. like Lenora or yeah. Helen are, but they feel much more kind of integral to the entire narrative, you know? And also like Emma and Erskel. I mean, there's... Yeah. Oh, and wait, do they even mention the preacher in this? No, the other, no. Uh, Preacher Teagarden, which is Teagarden, a huge yeah. character. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's so many people in... I mean, it's a little bit hard to summarize and we're going to miss things, I think, even talking about it because there's so many yeah, yeah, yeah. little characters that are fascinating as well as big characters. Just a lot of detail in this. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like not, a... It's not even a huge book. 
No, not at all. I, I, that's that's what really surprised me. I'll I'll go I'll go into the kind of more in depth uh, book summary shortly. But it really surprised me how kind of broader cast of characters this is. But nobody feels like an afterthought. It, no one feels like superfluous or unnecessary, which I think is quite a testament. I, I mean, again, we'll get to the movie, but I think they did a, a sterling job of condensing this down into a. Mm-hmm. into a feature length movie yeah I would even when I was reading I was like oh my gosh how are they going to portray the brutality of it the sort of nuances of all these different characters it's very you know he shines in the details of everyone yeah 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 100% and that's what makes it you know a painfully beautiful read <laughs> <laughs> right I will go a bit more in depth through the book. Stop me at any point if there's anything. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's just there's so much that happens in this book. Yeah. <laughs> it's really okay. So, uh, in depth looking at the book, we kind of start off in prologue where we meet the protagonist. Well, I, I guess he is the protagonist. He's kind of the through line. Yeah. Um, Arvin. Um, so we meet Arvin as a young boy uh, as he sits with his father in their clearing. Um, they're at their evening prayers um, at their quote-unquote prayer log. Yeah. Um, Willard, Arvin's father, is obsessi- obsessive when it comes to prayer. Arvin recalls his father telling him to stand up for himself, um, but this is easier said than done. Oh, I didn't even write in. This is the whole beating up the guy seed where they overhear some hunters passing through who are talking shit about Arvin's mother and how, you know, good she is and he, he should sneak into the house and then I think it's later on in that chapter that he uh Arvin's Willard takes Arvin out into the truck and he finds those men and beats them up extremely brutally to the point that one of the men like his jaws permanently broken I think yeah something like that yeah yeah he he, be- like, he beats them so much they've got like a permanent reminder yeah. of that kind of altercation. And it's all about Willard sort of has this message he tries to impart on Arvin about you have to pick your time. Like you don't you don't retaliate right away, but you wait when they don't expect it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we move on to the book's broken down into parts. I think there's seven overall. Um, part one, Sacrifice, uh, begins in 1945 before the prologue. Willard is a young single man who has just been discharged from combat duty after the end of World War II. As he sits on a bus headed to his home in Coal Creek, West Virginia, he recalls the horrifying things he saw and did during the war. One memory haunts him in particular, that of a soldier he comes across who has been skinned and crucified. Willard shoots the man as an act of mercy, putting him out of his suffering. The bus makes a stop at the Wooden Spoon Diner in Mead, Ohio, where Willard meets and instantly falls in love with the beautiful waitress, Charlotte. It's kind of interesting. So when you're hearing the story about the soldier who was crucified, I feel like this violence is becomes generational. It's like the cycle that everyone to experience the nightmares that Willard experienced. And he kind of, it, you know, he's inheriting the violence of Willard's life. And you see this later on with Lenore. <laughs> like they're all just playing in the same part that their parents played and it, this, yeah, this inheritance. Yeah, yeah, there, there, there's, there's lots of talk about this kind of cycle of, of kind of violence and it being passed down and down and down through the generations. Um, 
and this is this is kind of the start of it. What I found interesting about this was um, the book goes into a little more detail in regards to this scene, and they talk about how they come across the men who did this, who skinned him alive and crucified him, um, and Willard and his um, uh, squad uh, essentially execute these men um, as some, yeah, as some form of kind of retribution or, or revenge. And then they tell their commanders that they tried to escape. But in the movie, you don't, you don't ever get this, get this scene. But I think you, the movie kind of heightens the visual of it. It's this much more kind of visceral kind of Christ-like image that the movie does for this scene, whereas which I thought was very powerful. So after Willard uh, meets Charlotte um, at home, he is met by his mother, Emma, and her brother, Uncle Erskel. Willard proceeds to get drunk and his thoughts turn from the horrors of war to the beautiful waitress he just met. He lets slip to his mother that he has fallen in love, which upsets her because she made a bargain with God that if he let her son live, she would arrange a marriage between Willard and Helen Hatton. Oh, um, also that Helen, so her entire family had just died in a huge fire. Yes. Like uh, everyone has this brutal life, unrelenting. Yeah. And um, wait, did they explain where his dad was? What happened to his dad? I forget. They probably did. I don't recall it in the book. The movie doesn't, I don't think goes into it, but maybe they do. Oh, no, it does. I have some vague memory of it. Ugh, I'm sure no, it's no, somewhere. nothing mind, but maybe you're right. Um, but yeah, this, this, this whole thing about um, Willard's mother, Emma, making a, a bargain with God that if he returns home, she'll make sure that he marries Helen and Helen and him have this kind of happy life that they think that she feels they both deserve. And you almost feel like Emma almost blames herself for everything that happens after this point because yeah. she can't maintain this this promise. Yeah, as, as you said, uh, Helen Hatton's family have all died in this fire. She's the only survivor. Um, we move on to church where we meet Roy and Theodore. Roy's <laughs> uh, Theodore is Roy's wheelchair-bound cousin. Um, they preach about... Oh, who drank cure- antifreeze to prove his love for God. Yes, which is how come he's ended up in a wheelchair. Um, and they talk about how everyone from their kind of neck of the woods is that kind of zealot. cultish. Yeah, yeah, zealot. Yeah, that's, that's a much better word, yeah. Um, so Roy and Theodore uh, are preaching about letting God cure you and your worst fears. Roy dumps a bin full of, sp- of live spiders on his head, scaring mostly, mostly, mostly everyone in the chapel. Helen takes a liking to Roy and they get married and she has a baby. That, the way they described the spiders and just this whole scene was so visceral. And it's this idea of people's obsession with like evil, I find. (laughs) This is when I start was like, I think I really started to get hooked in the book. Like the beginning is a little bit painful just getting into that mindset of violence. And then once it got to this, I was like, I got like I ended up binging from that point. I think really. Oh, I I think I ended up reading this in about th- three days, just yeah. in like few sittings. I was I was super into it once it go. Like, like you say, it is it is unrelentingly awful and bleak. Mm-hmm. Um, but the characters and the, the horrific things they go through is like an incredibly compelling narrative to kind of 
go through with them. Um, especially having Arvin as the kind of, well, Arvin and Lenora as the kind of through line, because they're the two that have kind of, that you feel have got the most hope. Yeah, they have the potential to kind of be saved, I suppose, or they can break, yeah. the, they can break the cycle of... Exactly, and that's adventure. what you're kind of hoping for throughout, which is makes everything else that happens a bit more savage. So Theodore and Roy continue this kind of zealot-type preaching, uh, but after a spider bite gone wrong, Roy feels he's lost his connection to God. Roy decides that in order to regain his bond, he must crucify something and raise it from the dead. So in, so, in, in the book, didn't Theodore, he was the one who mentioned this, right? Yeah, he, so... Roy, because he hates Helen. And I think in this chapter, he talks about how annoyed he is at Helen constantly. Yeah, so the book, the book, the book expands their relationship a little bit more and hints that although they're cousins, Theodore's got... Like he's like attracted to Roy. There's some sort of unrequited love there. So when he meets Helen and they're having a fairly normal life together, Theodore's incredibly jealous. And um, I think so, he's definitely plotting at trying to get rid of her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That He's trying to undermine her at, at kind of every point. Um, and he uses this kind of... The fact that Roy thinks he's found his reconnection with God and that he can resurrect essentially Roy talks about uh finding like a straight animal to kind of test this on and like prove his power uh but Theodore convinces him that it has to be a bigger sacrifice for for God to kind of show his power which is where we end up with um a Theodore convinces Roy to kill Helen uh for the sacrifice so Roy has Helen drop Lenora off at Emma and Erskul's they take Helen out to a field and Roy stabs her in the neck with a screwdriver. Roy is unable to raise her from the dead. Um, <laughs> and they flee the town. But like the book goes in detail, like he's there for hours trying yeah. to raise her from the dead, like hoping that he hasn't made the biggest mistake. It's... And you just feel so gross as you're reading this. Mm. Like you, you walk away feeling sort of unsavory. It's like stomach churning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because Hel- Helen's got absolutely no idea. Oh, she's, she's such an innocent in all of this. Yeah, yeah. And, like, up until this point, Roy's giving her, given her no reason. And, like, he's still not giving her a reason because in the moment he still thinks that he is going to bring her back from the dead. And almost that she'll be thankful that she's had this experience. I think the, the, the way the movie portrays this scene in particular, I think, is one of... Uh, really does this not do much for you this scene like killed me when yeah I mean you know it's gonna I mean you read the book before the film. yeah yeah I read yeah. the book first yeah um so yeah so the resurrection does not happen work uh, <laughs> I would be very surprised I mean it could be you know it's a, a fictional book it could happen yeah. um so they flee town and at this point uh Roy and Helen's daughter Lenore who's like a baby yeah. is been left in the care of Emma and uh, her school who've got no idea what's what's happened. And they kind of don't question that they'll take care of Lenore and that's sort of to Emma's character that she just, okay, I'm taking care of this baby, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at, at this point Theodore doesn't care what happens to Lenore yeah. and he's in Roy's head enough that, like, essentially they're in the car and uh, Theodore's like, 
you've killed her and buried her. The police aren't going to believe that this was yeah. an accident or anything. Like, we flee or you're going to jail. So at that point, it's kind of saving themselves and she's kind of put from their mind. So after this point, we flash back to Willard marrying Charlotte and together they have a son, uh, Arvin, who we've met in the prologue. Uh, Willard becomes obsessed with prayer. Uh, this deepens when Charlotte contracts cancer. Willard's I think rituals it's stomach become... cancer in the book. It's a stomach cancer. I couldn't yeah. remember if they were, if they said specifically, yeah. Um, Willard's rituals become more bizarre and upsetting, uh, culminating in animal and even human sacrifice. I thought this was interesting, actually. Wait, I didn't write in about, there's the whole, did I even, oh my God, I totally forgot to put in about the landlord, the lawyer. Yeah. So that's, yeah. So the, 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 in, in, in the book, the, the sacrifices begin with a stray dog who Arvin's taken in, Jack um, Willard sacrifices the dog and pins it to a crucifix and hopes this blood sacrifice is going to be a pr uh, proving to God enough that they need Charlotte's help. But they also do like roadkill and other stray animals. Yeah. Um, but there's a, there's like a whole other subplot where <laughs> their landlord, who's a lawyer, yeah, he's sort of like a slimy snake oil salesman type lawyer. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Who we, we see briefly in the movie, but he gets much more time in the book. Um, we even get his yeah, we get it. Sorry, we get his perspective in the book. And it's all about the fact that his wife is having affairs with everyone in town. And he, mm -hmm. you know, he's this sort of overweight, insecure guy. So he takes it out on Willard and he kind of treats Willard like shit because of what's happening his personal life and he there's a storyline about how he tries to you know he's sort of he wants to maybe kill his wife he's not sure and he finds out she's sleeping with the black gardener and because it's the 50s it's you know mm -hmm. a bigger deal and he's obviously quite racist character and then there's some, I remember there's some sort of discussion with um, him hinting at Willard about maybe him doing something to take care of his wife in this garden. Yeah, he's the, the lawyer's playing golf with some buddies of his. Yeah. And he mentions how Willard's wife, Charlotte's attractive. Yeah. And then later on, someone takes the lawyer to one side and says, I don't know if you've heard about Willard, but he's quite an angry violent man and he tells him about this time he beat up these guys for talking about his wife and that plants the idea in the lawyer's head that maybe Willard would off his wife and the gardener yeah. for him potentially and then Willard kills him yep Willard decides that he needs to make a grander sacrifice so he drives to the lawyer's offices one evening uh, kills him. I think does he hit him in the back of the head with something? Yeah, was... he's like in an alleyway. I think. Yeah, um, and then yeah, he takes he takes him and sacrifices him as well. Um, and we we find out that the um, the wife and her lover end up getting the blame for his killing. So yeah, the the movie doesn't go into this. I, side I kind of, of understand. It's a whole another movie. A whole subplot. Yeah, yeah. it's a whole subplot. He, he's his sacrifices are getting to this point now they're upping the stakes but nothing's working it's all very true detective <laughs> yeah this kind of rural america kind of southern gothic stuff yeah so willard believes these acts of devotion are necessary to save his wife in the end in the end charlotte still dies 
prompting Willard to commit suicide the day of her funeral. Arvin discovers his father's bodies. Uh, he slit his own throat over the prayer log. He then goes, uh, Arvin then goes down to the gas station covered in a blueberry pie that he's been eating, unaware of what his father's been up to. Um, and Hank, who seems like an absolute sweetheart, who's the attendant at the gas station, uh, gets uh, Sheriff Lee to come down to get Arvin. Uh, so Arvin takes him up to show him what's happened. Uh, and then Arvin is moved in with his grandmother, Emma, and meets Lenora, Helen's daughter, that Emma has continued to take care of. And thus ends part one of the, the kind of narrative structure. So this next section is so interesting because he doesn't make this like Bonnie and Clyde situation. So Carl and Sandy, he doesn't make it attractive. Like, I feel like there's a little bit of, you know, glamorizing over serial killers in contemporary society. Just like, yeah, people, yeah, yeah. like everyone loves a serial killer podcast and things like that. Yeah. Which I appreciated. Like these mm-hmm. are disgusting people. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, what I think, what I think, what I think they do, which um, I'll read part two, and then uh, then then we can yeah. go a more into it. So part two on the hunt, uh, we meet Carl and Sandy Henderson, a pair of serial killers living in Mead, who are picking up male hitchhikers, hikers, and killing them. Sandy's brother is Sheriff Lee Bodecker, and she is uh, also used to work at uh, the same diner as Arvin's mum. Um, an unemployed photographer, Carl takes pictures of the men as they're having sex with Sandy and as they kill them, calling them models. Um, so what I think is, what I think they, what the um, Pollock does that, that kind of really, really makes them stand out sadistic and doesn't do this kind of natural born killers, kind of glamorizing serial killers, Bonnie and Clyde thing, is the fact that there's like, almost like um a repulsion they have for each other almost yeah like is that carl does sandy kind of feels repulsed that he does and kind of a bit vice versa to, kind of towards the end of their their story arc whereas normally like bonnie and clyde natural born killers um they're like so in love and think what they're doing is like the height of their kind of passion and devotion to each other. That kind of re-lamorizes it, but this does the complete like one eighty on that. The way he describes them is like Carl being extremely overweight and essentially mm. thinking to himself, Sandy's never going to sleep with me again. I'm never going to have sex with anyone again because I'm so disgusting. And then Sandy being described as this really emaciated, anemic looking her teeth are kind of rotting out. Hair yeah. Rotting. Like she essentially sounds like, you know, sort of drug addict, really just, and like really weathered and mended. Yeah, that kind of heartbreaking thing of like, you can, you can tell that she was like this beauty in her youth, but kind of life that she's living has like broken all of that kind of away from her. Mm-hmm. I think, I think this is like an incredibly weird and fascinating subplot that's running throughout the, the book and movie and yeah just their interactions with the men that they kill like a lot of soldiers and the yeah. way they try and coax them to sleep with sandy as well as like sandy so also the sheriff bodecker's the sheriff that arvin had gone to and he's yeah. the sheriff of knockham stiff all of the characters have got some overlap or interconnection somehow whether it's places they work or live or 
one person they know or someone they're related to, everyone's got this kind of interconnected thing. Um, I can't remember the book or the movie talk about it, but they talk about how everyone in Knockham Stiff is related through some form or other. Yeah. So it's this kind of small community. Um, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of, uh, kind of feel. Um, and, and again, even with Carl and Sandy, there's this run through of religion playing a part in it. Talking about, Sandy says something to to Carl like, uh, "Isn't that a name from the Bible?" And he says something like, "Everything's from the Bible." So there's this constant run through of of um, of religion. I'm sure at one point he, Carl also says that these interactions with the models are the only way he feels like even close to God. Yeah, which is like his religion. Being, yeah, yeah, which is like an incredibly messed up kind of uh, feeling. Um, but it's the devil all the time. There's no God in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. The 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 weird nonchalant way that um, so it's Carl and San, uh, Carl and yeah, Sandy aren't just not going out whenever they want to kind of do these acts. They're like planning almost like their yearly vacations. Yeah. They're like picking like a state or two and planning a route and saving their money and packing for it. And this is like their big getaway that they look forward to each year, which is like such a, such a like banal and every kind of day occurrence, like planning a vacation or a trip. And yet it's got this horrible undertone of like him going out to buy like rolls of film, like not to take pictures of their like holiday, but of the people they're planning to murder. It's... But it's like in a yeah. twisted sense, you can see, you can feel for them why it's like a trip to the beach, you know? It's not, you can kind of see in their crazy and understand they're crazy almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is um, disturbing, but it just the way he writes them, you believe this. Oh this yeah, makes yeah. Well, him happy that he loves this and the way he views it and the joy he gets out of it and the way he sees these young men that he's killing. Yeah. Um, so we move on from our kind of introduction to Carl and Sandy to part three, um, Orphans and Ghosts. Arvin and Laura have grown up and become very close. Arvin gets his father's gun, um, a Luger, which he bought back from the war and had left in the care of uh, school. Uh, Arvin received this on his 15th birthday. When Alora is bullied at school, Arvin comes to her defence fighting the bullies. Um, also, this is, I forgot, the, this is also the bit where we see Theodore and Roy again and they're in Florida at a carnival. Yeah, they've joined up with the carnival and they're, they're kind of doing like a take on their preaching vibe yeah. as part of the carnival. And one of Theodore's dating, is it the clown? The clown. And then Roy is sleeping with the flamingo lady. Yes. She looks like a flamingo. She's got like a beak face or something yeah. like that. She's got like a feather attire thing. Um, but yeah. Later on the sorry, there's a whole thing but about like, you know, Theodore sleeping with a man and how Roy says mm -hmm. it's wrong and yeah yeah um and then uh we move on to part four winter which jumps to um the, the 60s 
this focuses largely on Carla Sandy's murderous exploits. Uh, and also, I think the sheriff kind of starts to get on to there's something going on as well. Yes, because it's at this point that Carl starts. Um, so Carl doesn't work uh, and Sandy works at a bar to kind of save their money. And while she's on shift, Carl starts going to another bar yeah. and flirting with a woman. He makes up this, it makes up a thing about how he's a photographer from California and he's kind of living this fictitious life out just with their kind of interactions at this bar. And it's at this point that Sandy's brother, Lee, the sheriff of Knockham Stiff, starts looking into things because he's running for like sheriff or some local it's a, kind just of elect re election. Re election, yeah. And he gets a phone call to say that Sandy's been. Uh, selling herself out okay. the back of the bar she works in. So he's kind of looking into their life a little bit more and yeah. starts uncovering some kind of inconsistencies in what they've been up to. Uh, so the sheriff is not a good guy. He's in bed with, it's not like the mob, but like the local, you know, I think. It's, it's like the local drug. mob, essentially. The yeah. local like, crime people. Um, yeah. yeah, he's very much in bed with them and a little over his head to the point where he's been, they've been paying him to essentially murder people for them mm-hmm. um, and cover it up because he's the only like half competent law enforcement in the There's area. Like two people I think he murders for him in the book. Yeah, he, he talks about how he got paid more for the second one mm-hmm. um, than he did for the first one, yeah. Um, so yeah, at, at this point, there's only really one or two characters we've met who who don't seem... Who haven't, haven't killed anyone? <laughs> haven't killed anyone yet or don't feel like they're on already on the path to doing to i mean doing. it's essentially like there's no good guys left <laughs> this is yeah, not yeah, yeah. like the typical kind of good versus evil story it's just like evil versus slightly less evil <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah like at this point arvin is like a teenager and like you, you're kind of rooting for him and lenora but outside of that the sheriff is probably like the best like no emma of- emma <laughs> Emma, I suppose. Emma in her school, yeah. Uh, okay, so we move on from uh, Carl and Sandy and kind of the Sheriff Lee investigating their kind of untoward activities in town. Uh, we move on to part five, Preacher. Oh my gosh. Oh, <laughs> it was really, reading this was tough. Yeah. Because he is... was just like, I felt like my skin crawling as I was reading his character. Yeah. Um, okay, so part five, Preacher. Uh, we follow Roy, the, uh, the traveling preacher who killed okay. Lenora's brother. Roy is still living with his cousin, Theodore. And we're also dr- introduced to Pastor Teargarden? Teargarden? Yeah, I think is that? Teagarden. Teagarden, okay. Um, Preston Teagarden. Preston Teagarden. Um, so he takes over the kind of parishionage of Carl Creek Church, which yeah. is where Emma, Erskul, Lenora, Arvin... Yeah, because their reverend preacher, um, he got... He essentially got extremely ill and had to sort of force to retire. And yeah, and he's nephew. down saying how ill he is. And then, yeah, this is his nephew uh, who comes in to kind of replace him. Um so the new um, uh, tea garden, tea garden. Yeah. Uh, he lives with his young younger wife Cynthia. Uh, Lenora believes she's nineteen. They specify. Okay, so yeah, yeah I think he's so. nineteen. We don't find out how old he is, but he feels like a much older. I'm trying to guess. He's had that sort of like 
you envision him as sort of looking like a man child, but he's a lot older than he seems probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's So, hard to tell because Robert Patterson plays him in the movie and he does look much older than his wife, the actress yeah. who plays his wife, I think. Um, but they never really go into detail, but he, they immediately established that this new reverend has got an interest in younger women. Um, so Lenora believes the new reverend to be an exceptionally holy man, but Arvin has his doubts. These suspicions are validated when the reader learns of Tiergarden's seduction and sexual corruption of Cynthia, his wife. Uh, Tiergarden then successfully seduces Lenora, getting the young girl pregnant. When Lenora confronts Tiergarden about the pregnancy, he denies any part in it, asking her whom the townsfolk would believe, her or the preacher. He talks about how she's delusional uh, and she wants this to be the truth. Um, with nowhere else to turn, Lenora commits suicide. However, the book and movie both hint that in the moment where she's about to hang herself, she's having second thoughts and feels that she is strong enough to kind of go through with this. And Emma, Arvin, they'll, they'll all help her. Uh, unfortunately, the accident occurs and she hangs herself. Um, furious after putting the pieces of the story together, Arvin shoots Tiergarden dead and flees Cold Creek. So I think we need to unpack Yes, yes, there's that. a lot of details that occurred within that. There's a general summary. There's so much that happened. Mm -hmm. Just so also you get he essentially she's like the start of his grooming of the young girls in the church. Because then Yeah. once he dumps her, she hasn't committed suicide yet. There's two sisters that are even younger than her that he starts sleeping with. And apparently one of the sisters told him oh don't mess with my younger sister i don't know these, how old were these girls like 14 13 I, I assume so because Lenora is younger than Arvin and we see his 15th birthday 16 15 um, so I assume they've got to be like early teens yeah yeah very yeah early so he starts seeing these two sisters the older of whom says essentially she goes along with his sexual demands under the proviso that he doesn't do anything with her younger sister she's kind of trying to protect her younger sister at this point but he disregards that completely and starts sleeping with them both uh which arvin suspecting that the priest was involved with Lenora, starts essentially quits his job and is full-time like Stalking his, stalking the preacher to yeah. see what he's up to and like the preacher assumes no one is suspicious of him so he's pretty kind of careless like picks these girls up at the church drives them out to the middle of nowhere in uh knock them stiff and does what they do so it's fairly easy for arvin to kind of follow him and suss Yeah. out Oh, and what there he's also is to mention, because they have it in the film as well, there is the whole scene where that everyone brings a different dish for this welcoming party for the yeah uh, pastor. this this Yeah. is the scene that kind of establishes him as like a dickhead Yeah. essentially Yes. And uh, because they don't have any money, Emma can only afford chicken livers, but she's a really good cook. So she makes this really nice uh, dish. And essentially the pastor makes fun of her and says, oh, You know, everyone has bought these beautiful meats and these beautiful dishes, but even someone so poor, you know, they shame that, you know, they risked embarrassing self, themselves and bought chicken liver because they, 
Want yeah, couldn't have put anything else. Yeah. Yes. So I'm going to let everyone else have the nice dishes and I will eat the chicken liver. Yeah. Such a slimy. Oh, yeah. This oh, is the more... whole a section where he talks about what he forces his wife to do to him. Yeah. Uh, like, I'm not going to, I can't even say it aloud. It was just awful. <laughs> yeah. But like th this scene um, kind of leads to everything else happening. So kind of. He embarrasses and shames Emma, who, like, loves church. Like, going to church is, like, such a big part of her life. But she feels so shamed after this interaction that she kind of stops stops going, which kind of leads to Lenora being left more open because she's devout as well and wants to keep going to church. And that leads to her being alone with him more. It just, it's all unsettling. Yeah, so this, this essentially leads to... Ah, the, the the book does this does this wonderful thing of there's there's mo there's a moment where the younger of the two sisters who he starts seeing after Lenora mm -hmm. um, confesses to her parents what's been happening. Then the older of the sisters tells the preacher to Garden what that yeah. this has happened, <laughs> and you feel like it's going to start unraveling for him, and he's going to get his comeuppance. And it's at this moment that Arvin steps in, and they have their confrontation about Lenora mm -hmm. which leads to him shooting and killing the preacher and going on the run and you just feel like if he just held on the preacher might have got his comeuppance without him having to go to such extreme measures but that's not the world they're living in no exactly that like the whole book is that like you're like a few moments away from everything being okay and then one more domino falls and everything goes to shit again. I feel like in the story, as you're reading, it's less and less important to find their peace and just to get that revenge. Well, no, not revenge, but get the scales be balanced. It's not, that's not what you're looking for anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This was, this was, this section was like nonstop brutality mm -hmm. throughout. Like it, this was... For something that I was like so compelled to read, like every page was just like breaking me a bit more. I think this was probably the hardest section. Was yeah, yeah, it. yeah. But I was reading some of this before I went to bed of an evening, and like <laughs> it was a hard thing to kind of unwind from afterwards. Um, you just you enjoy it, but you also feel bad for it for how much yeah, you enjoy yeah. reading it. I suppose the enjoyment you get from the kind of how compelling the narrative is yeah it does make you feel kind of a bit grim about yourself yeah like am i that sleazy and <laughs> yeah 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 it's that whole like driving past an accident thing yeah. and like it's kind of fat like in in a book form okay so arvin shoots and kills the preacher and this is like where everything the ball is like rolling pretty quickly yeah and this is this is where we move into the last two sections where things are feel very much like everything snowballing and all the characters kind of left standing are starting to converge and implode at this point. So part six, Serpents, follows more of Carl's and Sandy's murderous rampage. The storylines of the major characters converge in a final section titled Ohio. In the wake of Theodore's death, a repentant Roy returns to Appalachia to track down and apologise to Lenora, who has since died and he's unaware also, of it. they were working in, was it like an orange field picking? Because yeah, so... 
Theodore essentially tried to uh, sexually assault a young child, and they got while they were at the circus. Yeah, so they got kicked out of the circus. So they they went not on the run necessarily, but they were told like you have to leave. You're not welcome anymore. Um, so Roy ends up picking up work as like a fruit picker. Theodore's like essentially beyond the point of being able to work like a regular job. Like unless they're preaching, there's nothing he can kind of do at this point. So during the day, he kind of sits in their makeshift camp while Roy's out picking. He comes home one night and doesn't even realise at first, which is quite heartbreaking. He comes back and is drinking some booze that he's bought with his wages and then realises that Theodore's passed away and has like ants, I think, crawling on his face or something. Oh. <laughs> yeah, which is, and he doesn't even bury him. He just kind of sits him back in his wheelchair, has a drink and has this like really kind of heartbreaking moment where he has a conversation with potentially Theodore's corpse about everything they've done together, the things they've enjoyed doing together, their memories. And obviously that he's expecting Theodore to respond, but there's nothing there. And then in the morning he decides that he's going to try and get good with the Lord again, repent for his sins, go and find his daughter. And he's just unaware that she's passed away. He returns to track down Lenora, who's unfortunately passed away. <laughs> At this point, unfortunately for Roy, he encounters Carl and Sandy, who make Roy their latest victim. And the scene is just insane because, like, really, Carl and Sandy are on their last leg, looks wise. <laughs> like, oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's nothing, like, really, they've lost their, like, shine there's nothing charismatic and you know Roy's yeah if, it felt very much like at the start of these expeditions of theirs Sandy was like younger more attractive like men were much more willing to be coaxed into sleeping with her but now it feels very much like Roy's immediately getting his gun out during these yeah. interactions now to kind of force the kind of the point and yeah Roy is their latest and he says no, and which forces them just to kill him, you know. Yeah, yeah, because like, like we were saying, this is the point where Roy's trying to get good with God and doesn't want to sleep with another man's wife, doesn't want any part in this kind of debauchery, which is such a weird turn for this. And this also, I, I feel like at that moment, I kind of, like I had a, a glimmer of hope because I was sort of like, it's really sad because he's going to get there and Nora's going to be dead, but like, even because I don't know if Roy is a horrible person. I mean, he's not a good person. No, I think he's like more. He's like there's there's characters in this like the the preacher who Teargarden, the yeah. preacher who has clearly got like evil tendencies. Mm -hmm. Like whereas Roy is like incredibly misguided. Yeah. Um. Uh, and like easily swayed and manipulated. But I think there's a semblance of kind of good to him. And I, when I was reading it, I thought his, I thought his kind of comeuppance was going to be that Theodore dies. He makes his way back to his hometown, confesses to the murder of Helen, and then finds out that Elnora has killed herself. And like all these elements of his life are now gone, and there's nothing for him. But even worse than that, I know. It's just like <laughs> no one gets a chance at all. There's nothing. <laughs> yeah. It's really impressive writing the fact that they built up this character with only glimmers of redemption and then you feel like they're going to have almost the redemptive arc 
but it's going to be like their downfall overall. But then even that, they you can't even just have Roy find out that he's going to jail for murder and that his daughter's killed herself. He has to get picked up by Carl and Sandy. It's like, ultimate, it's like the ultimate kind of uh, end for him. But also to the point, Roy never abandons Theodore, which is very important to point out. He mm-hmm. always, because it is, you know, a physical burden, this man who is wheelchair bound, you know, he gets them kicked out of their job and then Roy has to find another job to support them. And he never yeah. questions that no matter what, he always makes sure Theodore's taken care of. Yeah, yeah. And it does affect this thing like, despite their, their preaching and being very zealot and Roy convincing himself that God's speaking to him to the point that he could potentially resurrect someone, all of it is coming from this place of him being devout and believing in the kind of bible and like this weird kind of god yeah kind of thing and like he to him like looking after his cousin is like of paramount importance despite how complex and messy their relationship and essentially how much easier it would be for him if if he did just abandon theodore but he doesn't ever just do that even when Theodore is the one who's got convinced him to murder his wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. He's like, there's never any point in the book or movie really where like he blames him for for that. It's like Roy all blames himself for his kind of own self assurance in this this power of God, um, which is which is fascinating. Um, so yeah, so he's picked up by Carl and Sandy. He then refuses to go along with their usual plan of sex with sandy murder death photography skip so carl's like furious at this point because he thought this would be their last model of their current trip and he hasn't got anything good this holiday and they're on there he forgot about the model who escaped wait what did that happen that happens before roy yeah um so they pick up this isn't the army guys this is like Is this the long haired guy? Is this the hippie they pick up? Maybe. So they pick up a guy, one of their models before. Essentially, this is their last trip out, and nothing's gone to plan. They, Roy's unhappy with how their interactions have gone, the photos Carl, they've Carl got. Carl is unhappy. Carl, sorry, yeah. yeah. Um, and they pick up a they pick up a hitchhiker. Things seem to go well. They're drinking. He seems interested in Sandy. Sandy and this guy they picked up go swimming naked in this pool together. Um, but then Carl makes the mistake of pulling his gun. He turns his back on the guy and the guy just runs for it, as you yeah. would. In, at this point, Carl is like a broken husk of a man. Like, there's, there's no pursuit left in him. He gives chase. The guy gets away. He comes back and tells Sandy that he got him, quote unquote, like killed the guy. She doesn't believe this for a second. They have an argument and decide to start heading home. That's when they pick up Roy and things go from bad to worse with the Roy situation. Um, And now they're on their way back home and they've got a rule that they've been talking about the whole time where they'll never pick up a model in their home state. Everything's got to be out of state. He's got this list of rules that he sticks to. But then at this point, Having sold his car because it broke down, they happened to pick up Arvin. Oh my God. When this happened, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> no way. 
Okay. So Arvin's Arvin's killed the preacher in an act of kind of revenge on the Nora's part. He's fled town. His car's broken down. He sold it, and now he's hitchhiking back to where he grew up, to the home he lived in with Willard and Charlotte. Yeah. Because you essentially at this point he his driving force is he wants to kind of go and make amends with his father's past bury the remains of his dead dog Jack as like his, his thing is if this is the last thing he does before the law catches up to him or he doesn't know what's going to happen he wants to do this one thing before his potential life is over and this is when he gets picked up by Carl and Sandy <laughs> and they say they're driving that way they'll take him on their way um, do you want to explain what happens with Carl, Sandy, and Arvin. So they, same in the film, Carl needs to take a piss. They drive down this side road while, and while they're doing it, uh, Arvin very smartly sort of questions, how do they know about this like isolated spot if they said they're not from here? Uh, Yeah, he's suspicious. Yeah, and the way they're sort of like flirting with him and he's just like, "Mm, something's not right. And they get, out and what is it so i think he's so he sees our um carl drawing the gun and because he has his gun on him he manages to get a shot while he's still in the car and then sandy looks at him and she has her gun which she doesn't realize carl had actually filled in with legs because he didn't want her to actually have a loaded gun yeah he's paranoid at this point that sandy might turn on him so and so then he manages to shoot sandy first and they're dead (laughs) yep finally (laughs) yeah this is this is such a complicated scene Mm -hmm. because on one hand you're like you feel like carl and sandy were never going to stop and being killed was the only way they were going to stop and you're weirdly kind of, you're happy it was Arvin because you didn't want him to have be killed by them and end up with that fate. But then you're also like, he's been the only kind of character where you had a glimmer that something good might happen to him. And now he's on the run with three murders under his belt, despite all three of them to me, and I assume you as the reader, feeling incredibly justified. He's now on the road, and you know at this point that one of the people he's just killed is the local sheriff's sister. He doesn't know this at this point, but we do. And I think even with Sandy, she's again, it's a hard character because she was so physically taken advantage of and so was so innocent when she got into this relationship. Mm -hmm. And the way she sees these men and she kind of, you know, and she loves these men and she fantasizes about them and, it, you know, it upsets her obviously to a certain degree, not enough to do anything about it, but you you kind of want her to get out, you want her to yeah. kill Carl, in, but she never does. In the book and film, there's a, a moment where Sandy thinks to herself that she could kill Carl and make a run for it with Arvin, this young kid in the back of her car. Yeah. And maybe they could make it work. Yeah. But I think there's always there's always a hesitation with her. I think at this point she's so her and Carla so wrapped in each other's lives 
and like they need to both be destroyed like neither of them can kind of live without the other almost it's this weird symbiotic relationship and then from this point we kind of rapidly run through our closing segments so Arvin runs from the scene of the crime at this point Lee Bodecker Sandy's sister the sheriff is called in to investigate the murder and it's at this point that he discovers some of Carl's photos Mm -hmm. and starts to put together exactly what his sister and her husband have been up to Um, and he essentially is in a race against time now to cover all of this stuff up so he's hunting Arvin down Oh, it's because the sheriff from Knock'em Stiff had found the body of the pastor and he knew about Arvin. Well, he knew about the sis- Arvin's Lenore and thought maybe Arvin was involved and that's why he called. Yeah, so essentially the sheriff of uh, Knock'em Stiff calls Lee Bodecker to say, we've had a killing down here. We think the boy might come to your neck of the woods because he grew up there be on the lookout for him. We don't think he's dangerous. And it's immediately at this point that Lee puts the piece together and thinks that's the same caliber weapon that killed this priest that killed my sister and her husband. This kid's on the move. I know where he's going. I was there the night he, his dad died. So Lee tracks Arvin down to his old family home and they have this like incredibly tense kind of standoff in the woods that leads to Arvin killing the sheriff. He tell at this point he tells the sheriff, this is the kind of man your sister was married to, this is the kind of woman she was, shows him the photo that he's found, plants those photos on Lee as he's dying, and that's how the book ends essentially. And he's and he stays with him until he's dead, which don't they describe it as it feeling like forever, but only taking like a few minutes? Yeah, yeah. They, they, they think the thing that something like Arvin feels like he's there for years, but it only takes a few minutes for the sheriff's breath to leave his body or something like that. I mean, it's just a kind of amazing how rich these characters are and how yeah. even uh, uh, though they're the most unfixable, bleak individuals that you still see something in them I mean some of them less so obviously I I would not ever forgive certainly tea garden but some of them you still want them to figure it out Mm. yeah I think tea garden and Carl are the two that there's no real relatability to you can kind of oh there's the whole story and you can kind of see what breaks him because this is before he's become a serial killer is when they go to hollywood or la oh uh, carl and sandy you mean yeah and he what what was it they he sort of like pimps out sandy to do like a porn film oh god i completely forgot about this (sighs) awful horrible scene yeah i mean oh Oh my god! I could barely <laughs> think the, about the, it. The movie doesn't go into it at all, but essentially they move to it's, it's, it's LA, isn't it? Hollywood. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, um, and there, Carl's convinced he's going to make it as a photographer and he's going to shoot celebrities. 
uh, they're running out of money um, and they meet two guys who claim they work in like the industry and they want to use Sandy for a scene. They offer them $200. They turn up to this kind of shanty back, house. Yeah. Yeah. Backwards, middle of nowhere, shanty town where essentially Sandy is brutally raped, brutally raped. They throw Carl out um, and he doesn't, he doesn't even attempt to really go back in. Um, literally, they say in the book, hours later, they kind of carry her out, throw in the back of his car and give him $20 yeah. for it. He like has a mild argument with them. Uh, but I think this is the moment that breaks both of them um, and leads them down this kind of... Because they, you never start out broken something breaks you yeah 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 exactly yeah they're like a married couple out to make their fortune and this is the kind of turn the hand that's been dealt them um i mean don't get it wrong carl does not help them in this situation at all but you do you do kind of that's the one moment where you feel for carl i think yeah where like you feel like he's trying his best and he's got this kind of dream that he's holding on to and from this point on, that's broken, gone, and they're on this, he's set on this path now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm quite glad the movie doesn't do this scene. There are a lot of things in the book I don't think I could bear. I mean, we've seen films from this book club that have, you know, shown that yeah. level of violence. Yeah. But like the, the movie, I don't, I don't think the book's wrong to have these things. I think it's like they're really powerful in the book and the prose is great. But I think if you were doing it in a visual medium, there's a few scenes I'm glad they either skipped, condensed, or did in a much more kind of subtle, the viewer's smart enough to know what's happening here. We don't need to show them everything. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, yeah, um, no- I was you know, reading up about it and someone said that this book is violently sobering. Yeah, I think that's a very, a very apt quote. Um, Okay, any any closing thoughts for the book or anything before we move on to kind of talking more a bit more about the movie? Uh, not really beyond that. I think it is an amazing book, but I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. No, God, no, no. I think I think you need to be very aware of there are no light subject matters, any heavy subject matter you could potentially think of. This book will cover, and definitely ones I didn't think of that they cover that (laughs) pretty much I have never had that thought cross my brain before. And now it's there and it's never going to go away. Yeah. Um, But the, the the prose is great. It's unbelievable writing. The fact that I was so great. I was really kind of scared to read this book. So I was like, ah, this is really not my vibe. Not for me. I'm not going to be able to get into it. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would really be a drudge to try and finish the book. But once I started reading that was like maybe 20 pages in, I was just, I was hooked. Yeah, I agree. And to the film, The Devil All the Time. So it came out September 16th, 2020 on Netflix because there mm-hmm. is no cinema anymore. It has died. <laughs> it was announced last week that... <laughs> the end it's a uh, ramsey suggested we call it book to home or book to streaming <laughs> it's still on the screen i watched it on the screen <laughs> so 
So it filmed from February to April 2019. So it was directed by Antonio Campos, who's also directed The Sinner, uh, with TV series, episodes of The Punisher, a film Christine, Simon Killer, and After School. It seems like he's quite well-respected director. And yeah, I haven't seen any of his other stuff, but um, I read a few bunch of reviews where they said every film he's done has been better than the film before, which I think is yeah, a, a nice way of saying something about them. So it was adapted by him and his brother, Paulo Campos, and it was his brother's first screenplay, but so they collaborated on it. It's starring Donald Ray Pollock as the narrator, so the author of the book narrated. Incredible voice. Wow. Like, <laughs> I, I looked this up after the fact. Yeah. And I was like, because I wanted to know who was doing the voice for the narration. And like, unbelievably good voice for narration. Well, like, I saw it because we I watched the credits at the end and then I it said narrated mm. Donald Ray Pollock. I was like, oh my God. I am. Um, I don't think I could do it. But I, I, if he does the audio book, that would be like... <gasps> listen that would um, be amazing but i don't think i can handle the, <laughs> the book again <laughs> it is something i'm not sure i could reread this yeah i mean the fact that i've had to think so much about this book is a little bit difficult <laughs> enough so more the books no some yeah, books. <laughs> well the next few books are a little bit you know lighter <laughs> fair so it stars bill skarsgård as Willard, the father, he is also Alexander Skarsgård's little brother and uh, Stellan Skarsgård's son. Yeah, he's the clown in it. So <laughs> he also was an atomic blonde. Was he indeed? Yeah. So Tom Holland plays Arvin. I don't need to say what he's been in. There's Michael Banks Rapita, who plays young Arvin, who also is in It. Small world, that's interesting, yeah. And I read this little story that was quite interesting that apparently when he was in It, he said the only thing that scared him was the clown and he never knew who the actor who played the clown was. <laughs> and they purposely didn't tell him that Bill Skarsgård was going to be in it and that he was the clown. And they didn't tell him till later and apparently he broke out of tears when he found out. Yes. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. You have Haley Bennett, who plays Charlotte. Kristen Griffith, who plays Emma. Sebastian Stan, who's uh, Deputy Lee Bodecker. Riley Q, who plays Sandy. Jason Clark, Carl. Harry Melling, who plays Roy, who was also in The Old Guard. Was, he was. Pokey Lafarge, who plays Theodore, who's an actual musician and quite well-respected in like the country folk scene. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Eliza Scanlon plays Lenora, Robert Pattinson. In Little Women? Sorry? Eliza Scanlon was in Little Women. Oh, yeah, I totally forgot she was! <laughs> is it like a small group of actors who just get cast in all the films? Oh, the adaptations, yeah, yeah. yeah. There is a freakish amount of crossover. So, Robert Pattinson plays Reverend Preston Teagarden with his very unique accent. <laughs> We'll come, we'll come to that. Yeah. <laughs> David Atkinson plays Erskill and Mia Waskowska. Is that how you say your last name? Oh, yeah. You made a much better attempt than I would have done. So fair play to you. Plays Helen Haddon. So it was produced by Bronx Moving Company and Nine Stories Productions, which is Jake Gyllenhaal's production company. Yeah, he, he got like 
uh, a very early credit in the uh, credit sequence. <laughs> yeah. So the movie um, was very, they reference this a lot in the interviews, was shot in 35 millimeter. Mm-hmm. That means nothing to me, but all right. It, it felt, it was weirdly one of the first Netflix movies I've watched in a long time where it felt like a, a cinema movie. Yeah. It felt like it wasn't made for TV. It felt like it was made for a big screen. Um, I don't know if the 35 mil helped with that or not, but yeah, I thought it was a, I thought it was a good looking movie and like, not like an A-lister cast, but like a really good cast. Yeah. It was like definitely. Really cast. I mean, Tom Holland is pretty hot at the moment as well. Yeah. As Robert Pattinson is like pretty, it's kind of top tier. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. It's, it's, it's when you think of like Bill Skarsgård is like great, but like you don't think of as like A-lister. Sebastian Stan, I thought was like wicked. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Originally, Sebastian Stan's character was supposed to be played by Chris Evans. Really? Yes, and then he got replaced because of scheduling conflicts. They couldn't get Captain America, so they got Winter Soldier. That's Everyone. fine. In this film is a superhero, <laughs> British as well. Everyone is British. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the reviews I read were complaining about how bad the accents were. But like, other than Patterson's, which was notif- noticeably stood out, I thought yeah. everyone else, like, I mean, I live in the UK. I've got no idea about yeah. Southern accents. Well, they, not that I am like picky about my Southern accents, but they, one of a lot of the stuff was saying that they worked really hard with dialect coaches to get them to the point yeah. they were at. I can't imagine it's natural for a Brit to get to that point with a subject. Yeah, 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 totally. And they held on to the accents. They never, I don't think there was any point where it felt like they're dropping it. No, no. Like even Patterson, who's got like, a, like an incredibly unusual accent, yeah. uh, he was consistent with it at least. Like it felt like he stuck to that throughout so it kind of uh that consistency kind of made this character work yeah uh and so we could talk about this later but by the way the spiders were real were they i was trying to figure out that that is interesting yeah so they only they did it in one take because they didn't want anyone in the church to know that they were real and they hid them away and then they took them out and they just shot it they're those were their real reactions. Wow, that's cool. Okay. Um, but there also was a spider wrangler on set. <laughs> of course, you need a spider wrangler. <laughs> so, um, how do you want to yeah. do this? Because the movie <laughs> was fairly true to the book in terms yes. of the structure. Do you want to focus more on the differences? Or do you want to go it beat by beat and then pick out stuff as we go? I mean, there are a few very specific differences, but also one of the way they edit the story was quite different in that as you're going through the story, there's more flashbacks because the way they set it up is that they, they want you, you see the story of Arvin and then you see the story of Lenore because it, so it wants to show this sort of like parallel life that they're living, I guess. Yeah. So I suppose we can we can try and pick away that because there is, you know, we're kind of just going over the same story again if we talk mm-hmm. about it straightforward. I did really, I enjoyed how they opened the film, the sort of title sequence of you have yep. the map and showing. And then it did take me a second to like get into understanding how he was speaking the narrator. I was like, oh, okay. 
what a voice. And then I was like, okay, I really need to get into the rhythm of how he's mm-hmm. talking. You know, it's quite beautiful, the cinematography and the setup of this sort of very, these bleak towns. Everyone looks mm-hmm. really weathered and worn. Everything's dilapidated. And the first section, we're in Knockham Stiff. And it was interesting that they they do the flashback to Willard in the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is how you do a flashback, the Irishman. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I was thinking about. Like, this is how you do a flashback. Every movie we've watched for the film, like the yeah. book club. Oh, the old guard as well. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think this film would have more money than those films. I've got no idea, but it's the first time where a flashback felt like we were in a different time and place, and it felt authentic, and it didn't feel like a set. It felt like we were there, and even though they did like a kind of big set up beautiful cinematography moment with the um with gunnery sergeant miller mm-hmm. crucified and it was this established setup shot it all still felt believable and that made it more bleak um, but yeah the fact that they managed to balance all these flashbacks of the narratives and felt incredibly easy to follow um Maybe having read the book helps, but I feel like even going in blind, I would have been... Well, I watched it with um, uh, Sarah and Tony, so I have their opinions. And they, you know, they watch it without having any understanding for the book. Cool. And did Ellie watch it, or...? She did not, no. Okay. Understandable. Okay, it's not not for everyone movie. It was a dog. (laughs) Okay. Oh, yeah, there is a dog situation. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I I really, as like a historical flashback, I really thought it set the tone for mm-hmm. him and his loss in faith, I suppose. Yeah. So, because that's a little bit different, I suppose, from the book. Then you have him meeting Charlotte. So... Willard stops off the, the it's the wooden spoon, spoon isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um after he's been, he's come back from the war and he sits down about to sit down in an empty seat where he sees Charlotte, the waitress, for the first time. Um and another guy goes to take the seat at the same time, and this is Carl of Carl and Sandy fame. And we get these parallel meet weird meet cute moments where yeah. Willard meets Charlotte and Carl meets Sandy for the first time in this. Uh, and this is all, I felt like this was almost the movie playing on this notion of Emma's pledge to God that Willard would marry Helen. The, you already knows it's not going to happen. And in this moment, if he was going to marry Helen, Carl would have sat down there, never met Sandy, and they would have never gone off and had that life. Willard wouldn't have met Charlotte and would have gone back to town and met Helen and married her. It's, this is the like the pivot moment where everything goes to shit. Yeah, where everything goes wrong when they fall in love. <laughs> um, and the biggest, the the other big change is Willard talks to her. Yeah. He talks to Charlotte. In the book, he doesn't speak to her at all. And he goes home without knowing her name or having spoken to her and just tells Emma that he's in love with this girl. They do have an actual flirtation in the diner. She's in, like, in oh, the diner. cute. Yeah. yeah. She says something about how he's got a nice face or something. Yeah. Quite bold. Like, yeah, very bold. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, I thought that was interesting. And I liked that change. I think it made more sense for Willard to Yeah, and it's kind of compressing a little bit because they have to compress a lot. Yeah. So he leaves and you can tell he's infatuated with her. And then, then you meet Uncle Erskull who picks him up. Everything's the same there. Yeah. Then he goes home, he sees his mother. They go to church and you see Helen Haddon and she talks about she tries to like get him to turn but he's not really interested and then you have Roy and Theodore who Henry is it Henry or Harry Melling redeems himself for me in this scene for his role in the old guard (laughs) you know I liked him in the old guard but like even (laughs) liked him in the old guard this is like 10 times different performance like yeah which which makes me almost like his old guard performance more but clearly that was like a choice that he was to play that way because this this portrayal of, of Roy was like but both him and Theodore were tremendous yeah. I thought like considering we don't get we don't get half as much of them in the movie as we do in the book I felt like they did so much with the time they had on screen like mm-hmm. incredible this was like I read a review where it described the movie as like every 10 minutes having like this big set piece scene, not in like the terms of like an action movie, but like a big scene where like there's a key performance or like an impactful moment. And this felt like the, where you see you, you get the scene of the flashback is the first one, and then this scene of them preaching is your second kind of big moment. Yeah, and there's Roy jumps the jar of spiders on himself, which, as I said, are real. <laughs> Which is quite impressive. Impressive, and I also I started to notice, and I quite enjoy that the narr- narrator has an opinion about people, yeah. which I thought added a nice element because it's not just the like laziness of having a narrator because they don't know they don't have time or don't know how to tell other bits of the story. It's yeah, this other the, 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 voice that adds character and like opinions and his own kind of thoughts on it, which is even more fascinating when you when I found out it was the author. Yeah. The fact that he's like almost as you're going through the movie giving you his thoughts on the movie is like such an interesting take. Yeah. And then you have the quick run through of Willard going back to Charlotte and they get married and then have their son Arvin and then Helen has her own baby with Roy Lenore. So, and I also, the comment again, I, I did, I really enjoyed the music. I thought the tone of it really worked with the story. And yeah, agreed. And um, it felt very conscious. Like it's someone who really thought about the music for this film. And the, as well. I thought the whole thing as a package was really great. Like from the cast to the kind of scripting to the narrator choice to the cinematography to the music. It felt like such an incredibly well put together piece of of cinema. Like, yeah, I was really. You love this film so much more than I do. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, you know, I'll kind of get you get to my issues with it as we get to them. But again, I think all of this was pretty much a very summarized version of the book, where you have the father going out and beating the men who talked about the mother and then the mother getting sick and eventually dying and then Willard while this is happening Willard sacrifices Arvin's dog Jack and then it's the mother's funeral Arvin eats a blueberry pie goes to his room and then while he's in his room his father kills himself on the prayer log by slitting his throat and 
he finds him there. In this scene, for me, when I was reading the pain that the father was going through at losing his wife and not being able to do anything about it, it felt so obsessive and you could feel the hurt and desperation him refusing to believe he can't, you know, and helplessness and him not wanting to give up and yeah. dragging his son with him. And it didn't come through as much because it was so compressed because you only get that moment of Jack, the dog getting killed, which is awful, but it, yeah. I didn't really feel the helplessness of the dad and how he tortures his son as through this. Mm -hmm. You, the book does a much better job of it, but you get a tiny snippet of when just before Arvin realizes that Willard's killed himself, mm -hmm. you have him shouting at him that I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. In reference to like praying at the log again, yeah. Because um, like, and that's the moment where you you meant to realize how how hard he's been pushing the boy. Yeah. Um, and then right at the end when teenage Arvin has gone back to bury the dog you have a little bit of narration with him talking about how he how he finally kind of forgives his dad and realizes that it wasn't that he was abandoning him it was that he had to be with Charlotte um, I thought that was quite quite nice yeah and added a bit to that opening scene but I do agree that but the book because you have that bit more time for it to to breathe and for you to live in these kind of horrible moments with them. And the fact that you get this, this whole subplot with the lawyer and this kind of escalation of, of what Willard's willing to do really kind of hammers home that point. But um, the movie only has like 15, 20 minutes of this to, to kind of get there, which isn't quite enough. So we then meet Sheriff Lee Bodecker. He's in a car with a woman. We don't need to talk about that. But then he... <laughs> You don't want to talk about the scene where he gets sprung off into a Pepsi cup. Don't want to talk about that. Okay, we skip that. So <laughs> he gets a call and he goes and he finds Arvin with Hank, uh, the attendant, and they go and find the dad's dead body. So then we go back to Coal Creek where we meet Lenore. So then we get, so then it jumps back to parallel their two stories and yeah. then it'll kind of meet after that. I felt like they missed a beat in sort of tension building and just story building in that they tell us that she's going to die. Helen? When do they tell us? They the say this is the last time she's ever going to see her. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, they do. They do. And it, I just felt like that gave it away too much. And I, because I, because she talks about him figuring himself out and he's okay now and they're going to go for this drive and if I was someone who didn't know what was going to happen I would want to have this belief that it's going to be okay and then have that ruined that mm -hmm. kind of, that destruction of the hope I think would have really fallen more in line with the story yeah because I think we already that's... know it's going to go wrong before it happens yeah, I think that's fair. Do we... I can't remember exactly. Does the movie tell us that Roy's going to try and resurrect her? I can't remember if I knew that because of the book or if the movie tells you that explicitly. Mm, well, it's not Theodore's idea in the 
film because he's sleeping in the well they they never say because he doesn't have that type of relationship in the film they're not as in bed with each other yeah yeah (laughs) and you don't see theodore being bothered by helen necessarily you you get a few kind of looks and stuff but i think if you don't know they're easy to miss yeah um but i think this this is probably the the weakest uh set of characters in the movie um but i think it makes the most sense in terms of adaptation because they can all three of these stories down quite a lot so this is where it kind of i thought the editing of it and also they a little bit of a plot hole so he they go to the woods he stabs her in the neck and he tries to resurrect her and they go on the run and i you know i do like the line of theodore saying like they'll just think you're a crazy person yeah. And, and I think, though, they start to go a little, they compress a little too much because then Roy leaves the- Theodore in the car on the side of the road, which really yeah. bothered me because also then you never find out what happens to Theodore. Also, it kind you lose any, I mean, real sympathy for Roy because he's abandoning his brother, his cousin. Uh-huh. Cousin, yeah. So I felt like the better alternative would have been to maybe combine Roy and Theodore into one character mm. and then have a little bit more about whoever that was. Yeah. And I think they were stretching themselves a little too thin by having both of them. And then suddenly you're like, well, what about what happened to this guy? It doesn't really make sense that he abandoned him with the car. Why didn't he just take the car and leave Theodore somewhere? Yeah. I, um, I do agree. I was really surprised when we got to this scene so early on mm-hmm. um, with Theodore being abandoned. You cut to Roy in the back of their car with Sandy and Carl. Carl and we get this scene like in in the book, this is like the last mm-hmm. 6%. And in the movie, this is like less than half an hour into the movie we're getting this. Yeah. I guess... I guess they're using it as a way to establish Carl and Sandy as these characters. Because they've introduced this character and they built Roy up as a, a seemingly a key character. And then to have him killed off by them kind of establishes them quite swiftly as the kind of the big threat for the um, the movie. And also I do think uh, if they plotted it in the same way and had Roy get picked up and killed and then Arvin get picked up almost immediately and killed by them um, in the movie. That would have felt like so much at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. I think you've kind of got to split them apart. But I think you're right. I think you could even you can even get away with having Carl, uh, Roy and Theodore both in the movie, but just have just have Roy convince Theodore that they've got to go back for Lenora. Yeah. Have both of them get picked up by Carl and Sandy. And then if you have if you have Carl kill both of them, that feels more impactful. And you can even ha- like have Carl be like, "Oh, I don't th- like have him kill both of them." Be like, "We're not going to use Theodore. Like, I don't want yeah. a cripple. He'll ruin. He's not a model. He won't. Yeah. He'll ruin my photos." And you can up the stakes of Carl as this mm-hmm. kind of awful character. But like you say, in the end, what you do is you kind of undermine Roy's tiny moment of redemption. Um, because he just abandons his cousin. Yeah, um, doesn't make sense. Yeah, and like you could have, and because the movie hasn't established Theodorus being 
the instigator of Helen's murder. Like if they'd established that, you can understand why Rory's abandoned him. Like if Theodore's like going, yeah, kill Helen, kill Helen, that'll prove it. Then you almost have a bit more like, yeah, you can see why Rory's abandoned him, but you don't get enough of that. Yeah, I thought the pacing of this was a little off for me. Because yeah. also, like, when he's talking to Carl and Sandy about, like, you know, these hands of mine, I don't, they're disgusting, I'm not going to put them on your body, which is, you know, the lines he uses at the end of the book and really makes sense because he's so broken at this point and has gone through so much in his life being on the run for so long. He's only yeah. been in the car for five minutes at this point. <laughs> that's That's a fair point. However, I thought this was, like, immediately afterwards so essentially he has just murdered and buried Helen yeah. so I guess that's the thing he's like um he doesn't want to touch like Sandy or Carl with like his murder hands essentially <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, this was this was the biggest the biggest change that didn't add anything to the movie yes. you can see why they've made this change because there's so many characters you couldn't have had mm -hmm. Theodore and Roy's entire narrative play out as like another subplot the movie's already 220 like yeah. we'd be going to like 240 easily with their whole story well that's why I mean like make it a little less and better I think yeah so, because it, it's, I think it's hard with adaptations because in books, obviously, you become so attached to certain characters because they're yeah. so beautifully written. So, it's, I can understand that it's harder to take them out, but when it compromises such a, you know, you have to be really concise in a film and take advantage yeah. of every line that you have. So, getting rid of one True. character because he doesn't, Theodore doesn't add anything to the story in the film. No. No, like him, 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 the, them as a duo seem a bit more unnerving and zealot-like in their preaching, um, but it's not enough to justify having them both as there. So he's killed by Carl and Sandy, and then you go to 1957 when Arvin's been sent to live with his grandmother, and then you skip to 1965, and then it's his 15th birthday, in theory. I guess that works out time-wise. <laughs> It's very concise in telling, talking, establishing their relationship, Arvin and Lenora, and how close they are. And as well as some of Arvin's violent tendencies. And then <laughs> you find out that their reverend is leaving and that their nephew is going to, his nephew is going to come to town and take over. And then you have the scene with the chicken liver, which is pretty much, I would say word for word the same as the... Yeah, I agree. And then this was also... So then you get Reverend Teagarden or Robert Pattinson's accent. So mm -hmm. uh, it was interesting reading about it in that he refused to work with a dialect coach and essentially modeled the accent over like old school evangelist preachers from like 70s TV programs. Yeah. And it's... I think it's meant... he's. I think they said it's meant to be Tennessee... And it is so, <laughs> just, I don't know why it's laughable, but it's a little bit like, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, see, my, the issue with it is I agree. I think the actual accent itself is like so unusual. It becomes almost funny. Yeah, comical. Yeah, to hear him speak. But like, 
the cadence of how he speaks is very much like that kind of period evangelical preacher. The kind of cadence of his voice and the way he gives his sermons is. But then the accent is so jarring, it's hard to kind of marry the two. But I kind of liked it. I did yeah. like how weird it was. because um, Especially because he's like seen as this like big shot young outsider coming into town to take over. I think it's quite mostly he's got this weird almost foreign accent to them that makes him feel like even more aloof. Uh, I can 100% see why it'd be off-putting to people. Like, it is it's bizarre. <laughs> I suppose it is, like, he is meant to be off-putting. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. in yeah. general, you know, with his, but, like, ruffled shirt and the blue... Ruffled shirt and, like, his slightly, like, greasy hair, like, yeah. his older meter. Um, but I think you're right, the problem with it is, like, even if it is meant to be unnerving, if it comes across as, across as comical, even slightly, it undermines the whole point, I think. For me, it worked, but I can totally see it, it not working for me. As much as I think he did a good job in the role, I feel like I wanted a little more character development. In because in my mind, I was this, it's this overgrown child, which I didn't really get from his how he played the character. Mm. Like he's at, like a little bit inappropriately older, which he's older, but he's not uncomfortably older. Yeah. And as well, I, I thought, you know, the way they describe in the book, and it's, you know, it's hard because it's the director's vision of the character, but like kind of greasy as well, a little bit. Yeah. I, he, um, he was a little too attractive. <laughs> I think I think the movie had that across the board. I think everyone was a bit more attractive than they should have been, I think. Little, they like, had too many was, baths, these people. They should not yeah, have yeah. been like, bathing every day. Carl and Sandy in the book are like, husks of human beings yeah but in the movie i'm like sandy's still hot she's and like even even jason clark's carl like he does a really great performance of making it like him feel like yeah. a creepy unnerving slimy character but he's not bad, not bad looking, looking. At, all, not at all no yeah um i think patterson's got a similar problem i really wanted him to like not be able to handle the heat and just always be sweating yes and always have like sweat yes, as that, well. Like fanning himself and stuff. I think that would, because yeah. then he's still like attractive and you can see why the younger girls would be drawn to this like attractive preacher, like voice of God thing. Mm. But yeah, if he just looked like uncomfortable all the time in the heat, that would have really yeah. sold it to me. Because there was a bit of that, like he always had like a sweaty brow, but I really wanted them mm -hmm. to like push that. Amp yeah. it up. Yeah, everyone was a little too, I think, Uncle Erskel was the one who was the dirtiest. Yeah, poor, poor you know, Uncle like, Erskel. Yeah. Yeah. looked the most worn down of anyone in the movie. I think I just, it, it's a Hollywood problem. Like everyone's good looking because then actors have to look like models. Yeah, yeah, totally, and it, totally. And everyone's performance was good enough that like, it's they're believable in those roles sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah. Then you have the seduction of Emma. No, not Emma, sorry. Um, Lenora. Nora, yeah. <laughs> that would be Lenora. So you have her seduction where Preston takes her for a drive and they sort of start this affair. And the, the, the movie so, does a slightly different thing here, which is interesting, where uh, Arvin takes Lenora to the cemetery to visit her mother. Um, mm -hmm. And in the movie, there's a day where he decides to drop her off and leave. 
and he leaves her there to go and essentially get revenge on the three boys from school who bullied her. And it's at this point that yeah. she's there alone that the pastor Teagarden steps in. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And you feel like, again, it's one of those moments in the movie where one change, if Arvin had decided to like, that he didn't need to get revenge on those guys and he just stayed with Laura, things wouldn't have necessarily gone down that that route. The, pre- the preacher might have just not bothered with Lenora and moved straight on to the other girls that he was interested in. Yeah. Um, but that, that did, I didn't mind because it was just trying to compress no, totally, I thought, this, they, I I thought think this really worked. That worked very, I think of those type of changes, I, that was very yeah. seamless for me. Um, and then you could almost see why Arvin would blame himself sort of for this happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought the movie handled this scene with them in the car very subtly and well because the book goes into a lot more. For what you are allowed to show on in film, I suppose, when it comes to Peter yeah, Pelia, yeah. I guess. <laughs> we could, then it's Carl and Sandy. Yeah. So there, Sandy sort of looking, kind of fantasizing about the men that, these moments she got to heaven with the man. Yeah, which again is interesting because the book doesn't redo this, like having her look at the pictures and relive these moments with the the models. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Which I think the book never really made it feel like that much that Sandy wanted to be there, whereas the movie had moments where it felt like she, there was elements of this that she liked. Well, I think it's her getting to live another life. Yes. Like thinking, what if I had ended up with a guy like yes, this? Yes, exactly. So, you know, really wholesome, good looking, going yeah, home like with all American mother. kind of vibes, you know? Yeah. So she's fantasizing about what her life would have been like with them. And you get an interaction with her and her brother. And he, this is another change. He finds a photo of her with one of these yes, men that he much grabbed. earlier in the movie. Yeah, he, you're introduced, and you kind of get this character in the book. But this is you get more of this character in the film. The is, is Leroy and Boba. Leroy and Boba, the kind of crime syndicate guys. Yeah, of of Knockham Step, if you can say crime syndicate, it's establishing that he is a bad cop and he's in bed mm-hmm. with this local mob. And they make it clear that he's like in over his head. Like he's not really in charge of their relationship anymore. Like he does what he's told by them or they'll just get rid of him as well. Oh, I did like the really subtle nod, nod to him in the book. Cause he's married in the book that him always sucking on the Jolly Ranchers. Yes. And you have his sister giving her him a bag of Jolly yeah. Ranchers. So we meet them and then Sandy and Carl have picked up a soldier on the road. So this was another little plot hole. So Sandy calls the military after they've killed yes, him. Yes, I thought this was interesting. Tell them where they can find the body. Mm. And I thought, okay, it, I thought it confused me. It didn't really make sense. It didn't lead anywhere in the mm-hmm. story. It didn't have anything. It had nothing to do with the rest of the film. So didn't really get why it was there. Um, I quite liked this scene. It felt like the movie was doing this way more than the book where they were having these moments where um, if one character just waited or didn't do something, 
someone else's character would have come undone. It felt like this would have led eventually to Carl and Sandy being uncovered and these murders being found out. But Arvin, his whole storyline escalated to the point that he killed them before the police had a chance to investigate this yeah. this kind of crime. I feel like there needed to be maybe one more shot of something mm. else to cement that. But they also they hinted more. They hinted at Sandy trying to leave and get out of this life a few times. There was a scene when she was in mm-hmm. the car and she was like, "Fuck you, Carl, I'm going." And she pulled out of the drive and then parked again and went back inside and didn't leave him. So it always felt like, again, she was on the cusp of leaving him or starting a new life, but never having the kind of follow through. Like, she did like these men. She fantasised about these other lives with these men she could have had. She liked this guy, even though she let Carl kill him. So she kind of wanted to, like, save his reputation. (laughs) (laughs) Lenore then tells Preston that she's pregnant Mm -hmm. and he... And then he, he feigns innocence. He's like, I didn't have anything to do with this. You should have an abortion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awful, awful. And, and then you have Lenore's essentially having morning sickness yeah. and doesn't go to church. But then Arvin goes to church. He comes home and then finds that she's hung herself. And then there's a funeral and the cops tell her him that she's pregnant, which all plays out the same yeah. as book. Well, the, and the scene when he finds her in the movie was like really strong, I thought. Like he's just in this kind of darkened barn trying to lift her off the noose mm-hmm. and he's constantly yeah. kicking the door and open to scream for her. Calling Emma. Yeah, I thought that was like a really powerful scene. You don't know that it's him viewing these images, but you see Preston sleeping with the young girl and his wife. And I did really enjoy the shot of when he's with the younger girl in the car and she's leaning her head back and you see her red hair flying out the yeah, side. Yeah. I thought that was... I thought that, that was like... Uh, like, I liked how slightly awkward it was. You know? It wasn't... Like, she was not comfortable in that yeah, position. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there was no delusion these, these girls were like in any way enjoying this. They were doing this for like a multitude of reasons, but their enjoyment or desire to have sex with this man was not one of those reasons. Then you have the confrontation with Preston and Arvin, which is different. Yeah, yeah. In in the book, he confronts him in the car immediately after the young girls left. They have an argument. Mm -hmm. He gets shot in the movie they have this really tense scene where Arvin comes in to kind of like confess his sins. I do really like how Tom Holland played that. Yeah, movie. like I thought he was incredible in this movie. I thought like such a good performance. Um, but essentially he confesses to crimes. He confesses to tea garden. Yes, then. exactly that. Um, and then they have like a beautifully wonderful clumsy shootout. Like in the book, it's established that Arvin's like quite like a good shot and like he can handle a gun. But in the movie, it's like an awkward shootout. He shoots him a few times, he stumbles, he tries to get his gun shells, but they're hot and he can't pick them up. Like this isn't, it makes you feel like he wasn't, he wasn't necessarily there to kill him. It's just, that's how it played out. So as much as I love how they played the role, 
again, my issue is what it did to the story and how it changed sort of my emotional connection and sort of the unnervingness of this was that I felt like it was too much of like an avenging angel type of shtick. Yeah. And then it was sort of like, and now Tom Arvin, Tom Holland, is sort of on this avenging angel path and he's, you know, there to kill all these bad people and he will kill them and that's his role in the film. Whereas in the book, I never expected anyone to get their penance, really. Yeah. I, you know, I, I was kind of surprised when he was able to get away from Lee at the end of the book. I was like, oh, my God, there oh, is God, hope. Oh, God, yeah. Based on everything I read to that point, I I thought Tea Garden was going to kill him. Then when Carl and Sandy picked yeah. him up, I thought, he's dying here. And then when Sheriff Lee yeah. was on him, well, this is the end of him. The book can't have a, a quote-unquote happy ending. But I was yeah. pleasantly surprised it did. But, um, Whereas in the film, I was like, okay, everyone's gonna, you know, get what they yeah, deserve. Yeah, yeah. Point in the way they even framed Ar- Arvin when he has his his hat down yeah. in the church pew. I was like, the, the way they that kind of like symbolism the- and the kind of visualization of it. Yeah, totally. I get what you mean. Yeah. Again, I don't know if this added anything to the film. Lee goes to see Bobo and Leroy mm-hmm. and then he kills them. I agree. It added absolutely nothing, but I really enjoyed this scene. Like in isolation, <laughs> okay. I liked this scene so much, but it didn't add, it added absolutely nothing. Yeah. It felt a bit like that they'd introduced this, this sort of subplot with Leroy and Bobo and kind of wanted a conclusion to it. And this was the only way they could mm-hmm. really do it. And yeah. The only purpose it served, and it kind of worked in this regard, was he was a bit bumbling, really, Lee, until this point. Mm-hmm. There was no menace to him. So if they'd not had this scene and he'd gone after Arvin, the stakes would have been much lower. But because he turns up, yeah. he essentially assassinates the only two real threats in his town. It elevates Lee as this kind of like badass essentially so when he goes after Arvin there are more it feels like there's much more of a stake there like Arvin might get killed by this guy he's just taken out like this mobster this low level mobster and his like bodyguard um, yeah. and I just yeah. really love the cute scene when Lee's doing up his jacket over his little paunch the jacket's a bit too tight <laughs> and he's doing it up before he, so he doesn't get blood on his white shirt I wonder also if it's like, oh, we've paid to have Sebastian Stan in this film. we got to give him at least one other scene. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Because <laughs> otherwise he's only in like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe it is just them re-establishing him, yeah. But I, I do think you're right. Other than that, which is maybe a reach to say they used it to kind of elevate the kind of threat of the character. I liked it a lot, but it didn't, didn't add anything other than that, making him seem a bit more threatening. It just, I felt that I felt like there was other places that you could have add the, added the five minutes that this scene is. Yeah. Something else to help flesh another section out. Sandy and Carl pick up Arvin because his car breaks down when he's mm-hmm. on the run. And this is, again, I think this is, this is all the same. The only difference in this scene is in the book. Um, Sandy seems much more distraught that Carl's been shot. Like she's kind of saying and like screaming, Carl, Carl, over again. And then she draws the gun on Arvin. Whereas in the movie, it feels a bit like she only draws the gun because he's got a gun and it feels a bit 
awkward between them, uh, which I liked more, I think, the fact that Sandy... Because it, it could have been that Sandy been like, okay, well, I'll go off with you now. Yes. Yeah, yeah. She could have saved herself, really. She didn't, she didn't need to have tried to... Yeah, yeah. Him. Like It does feel like she only drew the gun because she thought that she was going to shoot him because he was with Carl. And it felt like if one yeah. of them could have just had a bit more of a... a a way of communicating they might have de-escalated that scene but then um oh, we do get oh, we get the flashback yeah. to the fact that carl had been putting blanks which i did, we didn't like as a change i think it was yeah. the that's a little sloppy that scene would have been much more tense if we'd known that her gun had blanks in it because then the it's all on Arvin in that moment, like what yeah. happens. But then to flash back and show the blanks, like that would have added so much more tension to their every encounter they had if we'd seen that scene earlier on with him loading blanks. They could have done it when Lee, like after around when Lee goes to visit her in the apartment and they're packing mm. to go on the trip. They could have done it. I think. Yeah. Buttered up against I guess that it's. Theme. I guess it is hard to visualize that he's loading blanks, though you know, because we. She shoots Arvin and he's not shot. He's pat himself down. He's fine. Then we cut back and as an audience, you know, oh, he's loading blanks. If we'd just seen him loading yeah. a gun, I don't know if I would have necessarily known he wasn't just loading it with ammunition. What does it say on the box? <laughs> you can have a shot. What does it say on the box? That was nice. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that would have worked. <laughs> then Lee gets called to the site of them being yeah. killed. And so he finds some film roll in the car seat. And he knows he has to like work quick because he realizes he doesn't want people to know what yeah. they're doing. He goes back to their apartment and finds like their photo room. And he collects everything and destroys all the evidence and this was, a, this was going... quite a like bleak but like really visually like interesting way of doing it. they had that whole scene where it was just them showing the negatives of all the photos yeah. which was like oh and then you see uh roy as yes well, it's one of them him. yeah no I, I thought that was good to show because obviously you don't get to see how many people they've yes. killed and this really shows and having know, it in the negative made it so like it was weirdly not quite as gruesome but weirdly like more uneasy because you're seeing more bleak. more bleak in these kind yeah. of like off-white burned out faces of these images yeah it was something really creepy about just seeing those negatives we find out that arvin's going back to knock him stiff mm -hmm. and he runs into hank at the gas station as he's going back to his old house and at the same time, Lee's getting the call about Arvin, and so he goes to confront him at the paralogue, and so you have this shootout yeah. scene between them. So this ending... Yes, this ending. <laughs> so, because I was with two other people, you know, the, the, the climax of the film, and and you're sort of like, what is he going to do next? We were, like, yelling at the TV, it's like, don't bury the gun, Pete. You need the gun. Because, you know, the people I was with don't know that this is the end, that he's going to be okay. And the fact that he buries the gun and then he goes 
onto the road to hitchhike again. Mm -hmm. We're like, don't hitchhike again. What are you doing? You've just almost were killed for hitchhiking and you're going to go back and do it. And then he, he picks up a ride with like a VW van with seemingly this hippie guy. And Sarah and Tony were like, why did he just pick up a lift with Charles Manson? <laughs> and then you have like in the background, like in the Vietnam War, they're talking about on the radio. The radio. Yeah. And it's like either this kid is going to get killed by this like Charles Manson mm -hmm. in the van or he's going to die in Vietnam War. It it, it was actually seemed more of a bleak ending. Um, I don't know. It felt like it was it was him breaking out of this this cycle, like they would live, they've lived, all these characters had lived their lives in this tiny, tiny bubble. They'd become their entire mm -hmm. world. And now finally, one of them was breaking out. He's only going to Cincinnati, but like that feels mm -hmm. like an entirely different universe. In oh, wait, isn't that where Hank dreamed of going to yes. in the book? Yeah. yeah. Um, that was a good nod to yeah. that. I, I didn't love this as an ending. Um, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure what else you could have done with it. Like, if you roll credits on him burying the gun, is that more of a... What's the... Mm. I mean, I think it kind of would have been interesting to have a shot of him just watching the sheriff slowly die. Oof. That... <laughs> I think that would have been... Yeah, but fuck me, that would have been a wild, bleak end. Well, that's what I mean. Like, you know, the universe they're living in is bleak. The last last line is that he's walking north towards Paint Creek. If he hurried, he could be on Route 15 hour. If he was lucky, someone would give him yeah. a ride. So I guess they just extrapolate that out in the movie. Mm -hmm. there, there was a moment when the van pulls up, the VW, um, and I, did, I knew they weren't going to do it. But I did have a moment, a tiny moment where I thought, is there going to be like a bunch of like really cute girls in this van and he's going to get in <laughs> and like drive off into the sunset? So I'm glad it was just like one normal hippie dude and they just drove yeah. off. Um, I thought it was quite nice, like him falling asleep and feeling like finally, he like rest. he was like in a, in a place where he felt safe enough to rest. Like he'd been on the run. No, you are not safe, Arvin, in that van. <laughs> They best not do a sequel where it opens with him murdered in that man. <laughs> I just don't think it had the depth for me that the book did because the editing was a, little, a tiny bit sloppy. It just needed... I, I agree. I, I, as is normally the case, I preferred the book because it, you get more time, yeah. especially in this case, you, you get more time to live and breathe with these characters. And when there's this many of them and they're all incredibly interesting and compelling, you want that time with them. Um, and the movie tried to have all of them there. And I think you're right. If you condensed the character down or compressed some or... like, is the, Would this have made a massive difference? Could you have... Could you have even not had... No, I guess you need them, really. I'm just wondering if you could have got rid of, got rid of Helen, Theodore, and Roy altogether, and just had Lenora be this orphan who Emma was raising. But maybe that's too. That could be interesting. Well, 
or almost could you get you could get rid of the uncle oh our school potentially oh <laughs> no have have a little bit tight of a sequence around Helen and I think just Roy. Yeah. I think there's a, I think they needed to work a little bit more on how they fit Lee into the story. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, it, he was the one element that felt, even though he had a direct connection to Carl and Sandy, he felt like he was in a slightly different movie to the rest of them. Yes. Um, like, case in point, in that scene we talked about where he goes and offs the, the crime boss. Like I said, I enjoyed the scene, but it did feel like it didn't fit the movie we were watching. It felt a little bit more like an action movie with, actually, it felt like Fargo, that scene. It did. <laughs> I mean, it definitely, Fargo is lending itself to this story. Yeah. I'm sure there's some influence, but I'm sure there could have been a way of showing his corruption that was a little more closely tied into the characters that you were following without having to add in new characters. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, also, was the lawyer who was selling them, the guy who was selling them the house, not Leroy? The guy who shows them the house? No, no. They look similar, but different different actors, yeah. Yeah, I just... I didn't get the unrelenting brutality of life in this (laughs) world of Knock'em Stiff that it felt, yeah, it felt like Arvin was going to take care of business, essentially. He was going to kill all these bad guys. And, you know, even, even, no, the bit about Lenore's, I think maybe the best, the, mo- the most similar to the type of violence of the story was the bit with Tea Garden and Lenora. Yes. Yeah. That was the bleakest bit that I had more of a similar connection to that story and hopelessness mm-hmm. was to her story. Yeah, ag- agree. Yeah. Rather than Arvin's story. Yeah, her, her story was the truest to the book. And the one that hit the hardest, I think. Yeah, those. Are, I mean, yeah. So I, I love the book. The film was okay for me. I, I, I agree. I, I'm, I'm. I thought the book was phenomenal, in all honesty. And I, I, I thought the movie was like a really good version of that. Like, I'm not sure. I think you'd be hard pressed to do a much better version. It is a good yeah. adaptation. I will I give it that. think it's a really good adaptation, yeah. Um, it's, it's not my favourite film. I wouldn't say it's a... No, yeah. it's, 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 it's flawed, but like, yeah, I think it's got a lot of merit about it. And if, as well, the fact that they got the author to do the voiceover. That was cherry on top. That was lovely. <laughs> yes. And you could, you could tell that they did love the story and they fell in love with these characters. And I think it pained them to get rid of any Which of the characters. Which is why everyone's there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to its, you know, fault that yeah, everyone yeah, is there. Yeah, I agree. Because they are so unbelievably beautifully written. I kind of, you know, I... He's definitely someone who I'm like, I want to read his other books, but also I'm like, oh my gosh, I, <laughs> I don't know if I can. Break. If they're anything like that, I need a break before I do any more. Yeah. yeah. I need some nice, like, fluffy reading and then maybe I Go can. Because he is, 
the way he describes characters really they come off the mm-hmm. page and you can't help in the you know some of the most disturbing probably one of the most disturbing books I've ever read but the fact that I was so enthralled mm-hmm. with it is such a testament yeah. to him there's a few there's a few scenes which were <laughs> incredibly beautiful prose depicting some of the weirdest most awful scenes I've never even considered but now will never scrub from my mind <laughs> chicken in the car yeah <laughs> not said lipstick um, scene which broke me the most yeah Ellie's not allowed to wear red <laughs> lipstick anymore <laughs> yeah and the, I think again they make a testament to the fact that it, it, I mean it's pretty impossible to portray prose in a yes. film Yeah. so the fact that they're like we can't film a film that's written in the way that he writes so we need to have his voice quite literally yeah. in this story. and I was glad that he wasn't just reading lines like he was reading it was mm-hmm. like his thoughts were new material like some of it was taken from the book and adapted but yeah yeah I thought that was like a really nice touch also the line that Lee says to Arvin when he's in the back of his car some people were born just so they could be buried I think that that sums the book up that is the that's yeah. the level of bleakness this book is uh, is handling all these characters like even Lenore like she wasn't meant to live alone doesn't life. matter what what they do or they're meant for is the grave is like heartbreakingly bleak should we do our rose and thorns as we've been <laughs> this has been a long one yeah okay let's do a quick rose and thorn yeah. and we'll wrap up ladies first Nora what have you got so my rose is just him as a writer being introduced to his prose mm. I think was kind of a gift almost like it's surprising how much I you know fell in love slash hated reading this <laughs> book like scene wise uh, there's just so much I mean it's definitely something from the book there are these amazing scenes, but like the worst subject matter possible. So <laughs> what do I pick? Oh, I don't know. Oh, I kind of, I, it's such a tiny bit and it's nothing in the, about it in the film, but I love the like weird relationship between, when there's the bit where Roy and Theodore are having the relationship with the flamingo lady and the mm-hmm. clown man. It was like, so it, it was like this little they had managed to find this little kind of happiness and it was so surreal and weird and quirky and I was like (laughs) you know so I quite like that tiny little bit I thought was really nice in the film the truest and the best bit again was the whole relationship between Lenora and Tea Garden I think was the best adaptation I didn't like how they handled Theodore and Roy in the film. I thought there was a way to do that better mm-hmm. as well as Sheriff Lee. I, because it's their side characters essentially in the book, but kind of main characters. And yeah. I don't think the film knew what they wanted, how important they wanted them to be in the film. Yeah. So instead they felt like they weren't, they, they could have been less and better or more and better. So instead you have this like middle version where they're not really that great at all. (laughs) So yes, 
I agree in terms of Thorn for the movie. I, Theodore and Roy started off really strong in the movie, but they wrap them up so quickly. It feels, it undermines the work they did to establish them to wrap it up. That Harry Melling definitely, I think he was my favourite actually. In terms as of a character. Yeah. yeah, performance. That one scene was so good. Yeah, yeah. He the both his the preaching scene and the scene, all three of his main scenes: the preaching scene, yeah. the scene with Helen in the woods, and the scene with Roy and Sandy. Even though I, I thought that was too rushed, all three of his scenes were great. He was a good performance. Um, in terms of my Rose um, in the movie, I. Uh, It is the scene with Arvin and Tiergarden when he makes him essentially confess to the mm-hmm. Lenore thing. Yeah. Um, I do think it, like you say, it sets him up to be this kind of hero that I don't think he really is. I think he is the good guy of the film, but I don't think he's like a hero by any stretch of the imagination. But I liked his performance, both of their performances in that scene is, was really strong. Um in the book, um, I really liked the bookend scenes of Arvin with Hank at the start and then him meeting him again at the end. I thought was like a like both really these tender yeah. moments. Um, the fact that he remembered him, yeah, I thought they were that was some one of very few moments of joy almost, yeah, um. Him saying come back and have a beer felt like almost a moment of normal. Oh, that was nice actually. I forgot yeah. that line. Um, yeah. Well, thank you, Sean, for this was quite a journey. I'm su- I'm always surprised how much we have to say about it. I know. When it's just the two of us, I'm like, oh, we're gonna do half an hour. Be <laughs> when have we ever only talked for a half an hour about one of these things? I know, but yeah, that that that'll do, eh? That'll do.